Welcome to Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. While you are there, you can learn more about who we are as a church, see the time and locations of our weekend gatherings, and see the different reoccurring ministries that happen on a weekly basis. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. great thanksgiving and, and was able to, to, to recognize how God has blessed you regardless of what the situation is around you. Um, you've noticed as you've come on campus this morning that it looks like we weren't quite ready for church today. Um, I don't know, maybe this is how your house looks every once in a while, but we've got, you know, the boxes all over and, and it kind of looks like I, I walked in and saw Andy Daub and I was like, I was on vacation last week. Did anyone know Sunday was coming? Like, did we forget? Um, obviously, we didn't, and so, you know, they, we've got the boxes around, and, and kind of, uh, you know, the, later on today, after church, we're going to be uh, joining together and decorating the campus, and, and uh, it's interesting, I was thinking about all these boxes, and we, we have some boxes around our house right now, and, and every year around this time, usually it's like that Thanksgiving week, weekend, where um, Sherry asks me the same question um, every year. And I don't know why this is, this is such a difficult question, and, and I don't know why that, that it, it feels like this is such a big deal, but the question comes every year, and it's this question. It's, when do you think you can climb into the attic and get the Christmas bins down? It comes every year, and for some reason, I'm surprised every year, like, really, you want me to go in the attic and get all the Christmas bins down? And, but that every year, we have that conversation. And, and so part of my job is to go into the attic and, and hand down the Christmas bins. And, um, and, and then my main job is outside the house, putting the lights on, you know, outside the house and, and doing those kinds of things. And, 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 and uh, it's interesting. I blame Thomas Edison for, for that. Um, you know, it's interesting, you know, Thomas Edison is known for, you know, uh, the incandescent light bulb, and uh, it's interesting because uh, he, he actually, then after he did the light bulb, he actually made sparkling, they were called sparkling Christmas lamps originally in 1879, and uh, what he did was he put these sparkling, what he called Christmas lamps up at Christmas time in his lab in Menlo Park, New Jersey. And a few years later, one of his staff members, probably his worst staff member, got the bright idea of taking those sparkling Christmas lamps home and putting them on his tree at Christmas. So he's the reason we do all of this stuff at Christmas, you know, all of the lights and the Christmas trees and putting lights outside of our house and all of that. So really, it's, it's his fault. Um, and eventually, those Christmas lights were mass-produced in 1902. So I feel like if, if I, if I, I think I'm more of a 1700s baby, like that would be, then I wouldn't have to do all that stuff. But oh well, um, it's where we are. And so, um, but if you to kind of think a little bit about all these boxes that we see and the boxes you see around campus this morning, if you think about that for a second, I want you to just use your imagination a little bit this morning. And uh, imagine if we came across one of these boxes and, uh, you know, boxes, when they're in storage, they have some dust on top, and you open them up, and they, they don't really smell fresh. 
Uh, they kind of have a certain scent to them. But, but imagine for a minute if we found a box, a dusty box, and we opened it up. And in the box, amongst all of whatever other stuff is in there, there was a book. And imagine reaching into that box and pulling out this book, and this book that looks like it hadn't been picked up or looked at for a while, and it kind of smells like, you know, that old book, um, for those of you who still read actual books. Um, and it doesn't, you know, it's, it's not a screen, but it's a book, and it sm- has that smell about it, that earthy smell. And pick up the book, and on the cover of the book, it says Isaiah. This morning... We want to look at uh, a pre-Christmas, a dusty old book, pre-Christmas, but the book that, that really prophesied about this time and, and what would happen, what God would do to change everything. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to open them up to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. And uh, we're going to kind of go back to before the first Christmas, before, before the, the advent, before Jesus uh, came and, 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 and put on flesh and blood and the incarnation and was born in that, that stable in Bethlehem, we're going to back up a, a, whole, a whole lot of years to when Isaiah was prophesying in, in Israel. And I want to read uh, verses 2 through 7 in Isaiah chapter 9. Um, and, 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 I want, and, I want us, and I want to set up the context of, of what we're hearing. So, so I want to read it first, and then, and then I want to set up that context. So Isaiah writes in, in chapter 9, verse 2, he writes, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has, has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divided the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot trampling war boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So in this dusty old book, a long time ago was written this prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. But it wasn't just about the coming of the Messiah. It also, as prophecy goes in the Old Testament, prophecy almost always has a present application and a future application. We think mostly about this prophecy in the context of its future application or our past, but, but the, the coming of Christ. And, and we think of it, though, of, of that, that, that Bethlehem birth and, and Jesus coming and, and all of that stuff. But, but it's interesting because as Isaiah spoke those words, he was talking from a really dark place in Israel's history. 
It, it was a time of judgment and a very little bit of hope. Mostly judgment, but, but a little bit of hope. Of disobedience and salvation. The king at the time of Israel was King Ahaz as Isaiah writes this prophecy, and uh, the, the, the cultural setting, the, 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 the setting of, of the nations around them was that Assyria was making its ascent to being the dominant world power at that time. And so Assyria was just conquering every nation, just rolling over them. And, and, and what happened was there were some nations that, that got together to try to stand against the, the, the kind of the, the steamroller of Assyria. And so these nations made an alliance so that they would stand against Assyria. And, and so Israel's this, this little nation uh, in, 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 in the region... And Ahaz, the king, was afraid, and he, and, he, and he didn't know what to do. And even though Isaiah was giving him counsel and, and making prophecies and talking about how the people needed to come back to their faithfulness to God, I, Ahaz didn't necessarily want to hear that or, or, or work with that kind of stuff, but he was afraid. And so what he ended up doing, rather than, than jumping in with these other nations that were kind of making this, this agreement to stand against uh, Assyria, he, he, he allied with uh, Assyria and so kind of made a deal with them that, you know, we'll kind of, kind of be with you if, if, you know, you treat us well. And, and here's the problem when you make a deal with a bully. <laughs> it never ends well for you, does it? <laughs> because they have no reason to keep their side of the deal. And so it didn't go well for Israel. It, the, the, the things that Ahaz worked out with, with, with Assyria didn't flesh out the way that he had hoped because Assyria had no reason to really do what they said they would do. And so now, now Israel is, is, is truly alone in that region of, of the world because the nations that got together to stand against Assyria, Israel didn't jump in with them, so they're, they're kind of now Israel's enemies. And, and Assyria, who, who Israel decided, well, we're going to try and, and make peace with them, and, and, and maybe, maybe they'll, they'll, they'll make an agreement, a, a deal, and, and that didn't turn out well. So, so they're pretty much alone, and everything falls apart for Ahaz and for Israel. And it spirals into this deep darkness. And, and it's interesting because uh, in that area... It, it, Assyria comes from the north, and, and, and traditionally, historically, uh, what's interesting is that uh, the enemies and, and the, the conquerors of Israel and, and most of Israel's pain and suffering come from the north. And, and, and it's just, it's, if something's coming from the north, it's never good news. Yet Isaiah gives this prophecy in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of this spiral that we're in, in the midst of this seemingly hopeless situation. Isaiah gives this prophecy and he talks about this region and he talks about these ideas of these things in the north. And, and so in the midst of this darkness, this ground zero that they've always, they've always been in this, this almost black hole of darkness, in the midst of this darkness, this ground zero comes a light that will give hope to all generations. You see, as Isaiah spoke these words of prophecy in that day, our greatest problem isn't our health, it's not our relationships, it's not our economy, it's not our environment, and it's not our freedoms. Our greatest problem is our sinfulness that separates us from God. That is our greatest problem. It's the defining 
issue in our lives. All of those other things are significant, but those aren't the defining issue in our lives. The defining issue is our sinfulness. And, and, and so, so Isaiah begins and he, and he says this. He says, he says in verse 2, he says, the people who walked in darkness, and again, who, was, who were the people walking in darkness? The Israelites. They were walking in darkness. It was, it was an incredibly dark time in their history. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has, shown, has, has light shone. He, talks, he begins this by saying there's going to be a light that's being turned on. There's going to be a light that everyone's going to see. Everyone walking in darkness, everybody in darkness in this land of deep darkness, there will be a light that shows up that will bring hope and, and, and something will come with it. And so the reality that he, that he recognizes there is that we live in a dark world. Our world is dark. And the truth of, of living in a dark world is that anytime there is a light in darkness, that light always does its job. There's never an instance that darkness overcomes light. Darkness is the absence of light. Like you, you can't, you can't like push darkness into a room with light. It's that, why do we have night? It's because the sun goes behind the earth and we no longer can see. It's not that the darkness rises and overcomes the sun. The only way that that can happen is if our sun burns out. <laughs> and even that, the darkness didn't overcome it. The sun and the light will always overcome darkness. And so that is, that is just a universal truth that light always illuminates. It is its nature and it can't not do that. The good news here is that while darkness is the default, it doesn't have to characterize our journey. It doesn't have to characterize our journey. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. And just to think about this and, 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 and come back to this in a minute. Um, one of the ways that um, we could, could set things up that we can't be friends is, is that if, if I'm in a dark room, if I'm in my bed sleeping, and it's, I really prefer just pitch dark when, when I sleep. I really do. I, like, I, I, if, if, we're, if we're traveling and we're in a motel or something like that, and, and there's a clock there that ha is bright and you can't, I like, will put a towel over it because I don't even like the, the dim, dim reflection, you know, the, the, the light that the clock does. Or there can be like a, a light on a, on a TV that's turned off, you know, the little red light that I will put something in front of that because I don't want any light. And so I really like that. And, and here's, here's a way for us never to be friends is come into that room of darkness while I'm sleeping, wake me up by turning on the light. Like we can't be friends then because that's a horrible thing. Because I, I, you know, has that ever happened to you? You know, like you, this, this bright light goes on and it's the worst. Because why? Because you are accustomed and you are used to darkness. And anytime you are accustomed to darkness, light is painful. Isn't that interesting? That when we are in darkness, light feels like the enemy. 
Even when, even when it's dark and you kind of think, man, I wish there was a light, you see a, a, a pinhole of light, but it still is, you kind of shy away from it in the moment, don't you? Even when you're looking for it. And, and, and so we have to remember, just kind of remember that for a second. That, that, that what light tends to do when you are accustomed to darkness. Um, verse 3, he goes on, he says, You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They have rejoiced before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divided the spoil. He, he, he goes on and, and he says in verse 4, he says, um, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. He talks about this idea of of every boot trampling, of of the trampling warrior in battle, these these violent battles that are going on. He says that that even even these garments will be burned as fuel for the fire. Here's what he's saying. He begins talking about this idea that, that there will be joy ultimately because of this light that will exceed the joy that people feel when the harvest is brought in. And that, that, was, that, was, that was basically like their payday <laughs> when, when the harvest comes in. And what they would do, they would celebrate the incoming of the harvest and, and they would then have huge feasts and celebration and they would share the, 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 all of the stuff that they had. I mean, it's, it's kind of like payday. It's getting this huge paycheck and having enough of the paycheck to go around for everyone. And you just throw a big party. And he says, it'll be greater joy than when the harvest comes in. It'll be greater joy than when a battle is, is over and you're on the winning side. And, and that, that the truth and, and justice has triumphed. He says that, that, that the joy and the hope to the degree of those kinds of celebrations and more and that God's enemies will eventually be utterly defeated. And there will be nothing left. And then he, and then he explains what the light will be. Because so far he's, he's kind of said, look, there will come a time when you're walking in darkness and you are used to the darkness, you're accustomed to it, but there will be a great light and that great light will be a source of incomprehensible joy. And then he goes in verse 6 and he says, here's, here's what we're looking at. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And it's so interesting that Isaiah uses that terminology. He says, for unto us a son is, a child is born, for unto us a son is given. And I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about, this is a passage that if you've been in church any amount of time, especially at the holidays, you've heard this passage. But I don't know if you've stopped long enough to really think about what, what, what even just the, the, the significance of the words that Isaiah is using. He says, for unto us a child is born, which talks about the child's humanity, that is a child who was born. It'll be a human child. But then he says, to us a son is given. That almost sounds redundant, doesn't it? But a son is given is different than a child being born. Son referencing the Son of Man being divine. Going back to all kinds of prophecies throughout the Old Testament, talking about the coming of Messiah, God made flesh. And so, so when Isaiah says a child is born, he's talking about this child will have full humanity. And he says, when he says a son is given, he says, and this child will have full divinity. So that, so that he will be this God-man who will come to make things right. So he says, for unto us a, a child is born, 
Unto us a son is given. And then he says, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, which is something that I think as I was growing up, and I don't know if I heard this somewhere or I just misunderstood this, but it's interesting because I always thought that was a negative thing, that the government would be against Jesus. But what's interesting, in those days, those who were, had power and authority in government would wear a, a, an ensign or a, a, some kind of symbol, and you know where they would wear that? They would wear it on their shoulder. And it would be a sign, and it would be a, a communication piece to let the people know who saw that person that that person was in charge that that person had the authority of the government. And what Isaiah says here is a word of encouragement about this son and this child. He says the government will be upon his shoulder. In other words, he will, have the full, he will become the government. He will be a ruler. He will have the authority. And it says, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And I think all of those titles have significance because what those titles communicate. When you think of what would a wonderful counselor be in your life, a wonderful, what is the, what is the role of a counselor? A counselor brings hope. If you go to someone for counseling or you want counsel from someone, what you're looking for ultimately is not just advice, but you're looking for hope. And so a wonderful counselor brings hope, and that is the title that this child's son will hold. Wonderful counselor. And this is mighty God. I mean, when you think of, uh, of mighty God, you're thinking of, of a God who is greater and more mighty than any other force or being or power in all of the universe, which I would think would result in joy, <laughs> knowing that you are loved or you are cared for by a mighty God. I remember growing up that, that uh, I always thought my dad, like my dad was, was, was the dad who, who I just had had ultimate confidence in that my dad was like the mightiest dad out there. <laughs> and I remember any time I would be in trouble, I would, I would go, go to my dad. Not that I had done something wrong, but if I was afraid or in trouble, and he would make everything okay. And I would get great joy because of my mighty dad. Yet that's a title for this son, child, mighty God. And then he says, everlasting father, Probably the, the, the key characteristic of a father is love. Of a good father is love. And so he holds the title everlasting father, which means this love will last forever. And then that final title that, that this child's son is given is prince of peace, which kind of speaks for itself, doesn't it? That the nature of bearing a title, Prince of Peace, is that you bring peace ultimately to the situation that you're in. Isaiah goes on and he says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And here's, here's one of those things that we have to like do a, a quick reset from, from what we think. Like, we think, I don't want big government I don't want government telling me what to do. I don't want more and more and more government. And it's funny, right here, Isaiah says, of the growth of his government, there will be no end. I mean, it feels like that today with the government, doesn't it? I mean, it feels like there will be no end to their growth. But here's, here's in a good sense, is that of, of this 
child son's rule and authority and government, there will be no end. And it will be forever. That it will keep going. And he says, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, which goes back to all of these prophecies talking about the Messiah who will come through the line of David, he says, he says, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. And that's the thing that distincts it from all other governments. Because there's really not any government in human history that can truly be characterized as righteous and just. None of them. But of his government that grows and grows and has no end, it will be characterized by righteousness and justice. And he says, from this time forth and forevermore. And it says, God will be zealous, using the title for God, Lord of hosts, which is a title of, uh, that, that is used of God when it, when it like, it's that conversation ending title. Like if you were arguing about, about well, did, did, did God say that, you know, who said that, who told me to do this? If somebody said the Lord of hosts told you to do this, that was like, okay, well, there's no more questions. I just have to do it. <laughs> Because the Lord of hosts is the high title of God. And so, and so he says, the, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, that this will happen. You can be completely confident that this will happen. And so, and so the reality is that Jesus will receive the kingdom of earth from his father, vindicating it from the misrule of those entrusted with it under God's authority, who've rebelled against God, and serve themselves rather than one another. And so he says, this is what's going to happen, all of this. And so the people, as they hear, hear Isaiah's prophecy, they're thinking about Assyria and the other nations. And they're thinking about how one day all of this can be made right. But, but further on, because we're talking about this, this son-child who wasn't born there in that context, but was the prophecy for a child that would be born in the future. And, and, and so, so the, the reality is, is that for us in here and now, we think about how this impacted those in Israel, that they, that, they, that, that they would recognize that even though we're in this dark, dark time, there is still hope. Even though we, we, we can't see where we're even going, there's hope and that God is faithful and that God is still with us. He's thinking about us. He has a plan we just probably have to be patient and be faithful and choose to believe that God keeps his promises because he does. And, and so as I think about, though, for us, and, and I think about that future part of the prophecy, which is in our past of, of the birth of Christ, this child son who is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace, that, 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 that the reality is, is that for us is, is, is exactly what Isaiah starts out saying. The common thread that unites and divides humanity is that we are dark walkers. That unites us in the sense that we are all as clueless as the next. We are all walking in darkness, but it also divides us because when you're walking in darkness, you're not exactly helpful for the person next to you, are you? 
And especially if you're in the darkness and you're afraid, you are out for yourself. And so you're not helpful, so that also divides us. But you see, what, what Isaiah says there and what Jesus did was, was Jesus is light in your darkness. He's light in, in the world of darkness, but he's also light in your darkness and my darkness. Remember that I said the, the biggest issue that we have is sinfulness? Jesus is the light in that sinfulness. And so the reality of, of where I am now, what I was born into, what I am walking in darkness, won't be dark forever. And that Jesus brings hope and joy and love and peace. What I need is offered in Christ. He is the beginning of that journey of going from darkness to light. And, and, and while some of us have seen and responded to the light of Jesus, there's still darkness around us, and sometimes it feels more intense than others. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget this one trip that I took, and it was when we lived in South Dakota, and we drove out to the Black Hills, and it was winter, and a friend and I, we, we rented snowmobiles, and we did some snowmobiling in the Black Hills, and we were coming back, and it was, it was kind of a snowstorm, and we're driving in the middle of nowhere in South Dakota, and it's nighttime, and, and, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but sometimes when you're driving at night, it just feels like your headlights aren't as bright as they normally are, and you just don't have the visibility that you wish you had. And you, it was one of those nights, and I felt like, man, there is, my lights are not, it is really dark. And it's the funny thing, in my mind, I think I was thinking, man, the, the dark is really dimming the lights, which doesn't work. <laughs> but I drove along for, I don't know how many miles, but I drove for a long time. And finally, I was like, okay, I'm going to stop the car, get out into the, into the snowstorm, and I'm going to look at my lights, because there is something wrong. My lights were covered with a sheet of ice and snow, which was making the lights less effective. Once I got that off of the lights, once I cleared my headlights, it was a world of difference. You see, sometimes even when we are walking in Jesus and we've seen the light and we've received the light, sometimes the darkness around us just puts a film over us. Sometimes it's because we participate in sin. Sometimes it's because we are affected by the sin around us. But just know that in those moments you have to stop and you have to let Jesus clear the light. And trust him and, and, and remember his faithfulness. You see, Jesus is the light in my darkness. And, and not only that, but he's light in the darkness around me. I love what Kim, Tim, Tim Keller says about Christmas. And, and it really relates to this passage. Tim Keller says, Christmas, therefore, is the most unsentimental, realistic way of looking at life. It does not say, cheer up. If we all pull together, we can make the world a better place. It says instead, things really are this bad. And we can't heal or save ourselves. Things really are this dark. Nevertheless, there is hope. See, that's what Christmas says. It's the nevertheless, there is hope. The Christmas message is that on those living in the land of deep darkness, light has dawned. That's the hope that we have.
That even though we live and walk and, and there's darkness all around us, that the light has dawned in the person of Jesus Christ. See, we are the ones who carry the light into the darkness. If we have surrendered to Jesus, then we are his light to everyone around. We are lights in the darkness. And so we have a responsibility to help others with adjusting to the light, helping others become like Jesus. That's what adjusting to the light is. It's becoming like Jesus. And here's where I want to go back. Remember I mentioned how, how I hate having the light turned on when I'm accustomed and used to darkness and I'm sleeping? <clears throat> Imagine for a minute that you did that to me. And I just want to know, you don't even have to know me well. What do you think my mood or reaction to you would be in that moment? you would probably ask me to stop preaching. <laughs> you would probably say, he is not fit to preach because I saw him in that moment. <laughs> and he was not kind, he was not loving, and he said some choice things to me that I don't think I should repeat right now. That's probably what, what you would experience from me. Here's the thing. When we are accustomed to darkness, we have a hard time with light. And we have to adjust to the light because we have, we really, we have two options. We can either take some time to adjust ourselves to the light or we can adjust the light to us. A few weeks ago, Sherry was away, and, and I decided uh, I wanted to make an adjustment to our bedroom because uh, our, our bedroom, we have a bathroom there, and there's no door on the bathroom, so it's just open. And so if Sherry gets up before me or I get up before her and we use the bathroom, we turn on the light, and light floods into our bedroom. And I hate that. So I got the brilliant idea of replacing the light switch with a dimmer switch. So that way, when the light goes on, when it's dark in the bathroom, we can have it set at the lowest setting so it's barely showing and it's not offensive. And you see, that's the way those who walk in darkness in our world, those who are still slaves to darkness, to sin, they would argue to adjust the light to them as if we were attaching a dimmer switch to Jesus. And say, no, 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 the light's too bright. It reminds me of, of uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the claymation special that's on probably any time in the next few weeks. Um, one of my favorite specials and most terrifying ones because of the bumble. <laughs> terrifying for a child. I don't know why they would do that. But, but, but anyway, so do you remember the scene in that, in that cartoon, that special, where, where suddenly Rudolph's fake nose pops off because he's really excited because I think, I don't remember her name. Clarice. There you go, Clarice. No, excellent, well done. Um, where he, he's excited because Clarice is there and his nose pops off and, and his red nose shines and Santa's standing there and he's like, whoa, Rudolph, tone it down, you know, like that. He does that. That's what we tend to do and that's what the world wants to do with Jesus is whoa, 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 whoa. Tone the light down. It's too bright. But you see, here's what our job is, what Jesus has called us to do. We don't adjust our light to the world. But what we do is we compassionately and lovingly and patiently help the world 
adjust to the light of Jesus. And that takes time. Just like you wouldn't walk in and turn a light on and say, okay, get out of bed. No, I'm going to put the covers over my head and stay in bed. (laughs) In engaging those who are walking in darkness, we have to be patient. We don't dim the light of Jesus. We don't compromise on that. But we do have to have patience because they are accustomed to darkness and they have to adjust to the light. See, here's some things that I would say are consequences to understanding this passage. One is this. The world is in and is used to darkness. Two, Jesus calls us to reflect, to actually become his light to those walking in darkness. And those still in darkness will need some time to adjust to the light, but nevertheless, it is they who need to adjust to the light. We are here to help them. And, and so really, that's our calling. If, if, if you want to summarize what you're called to do in your lifetime, it's to help others adjust their eyes to the light. That's what you're called to do. And what's cool is that around this time, Christmas time, this season, the month of December even, people feel compelled to be a little bit nicer, don't they? People feel compelled to check a box and say, I did something religious, because that's kind of how it feels, right? People will show up at church around December that don't show up to church any other time of the year because they feel compelled by the nature of the season to do something, to check a box, to say, oh, I I did, yeah, I I went to church during December. (laughs) It's like a box that even our culture still kind of feels some need to check. And so I want you to know that Christmas at Crosspoint is for our family, but it's also about our family receiving other people who can become family. And so the thing that I want you to have as I close this morning and as we, as we finish up our service, as the worship team comes back up, here's what I want you to understand. That as we celebrate Christmas this month here at Crosspoint, as we decorate the church and the campus and as, as we do all kinds of things on Sundays especially as we move into Christmas time, it's about our family, but it's all about, also about receiving those who God has brought out of darkness to become part of this family. And and so I would encourage you that as we have so many places to serve over the next few Sundays, please don't just think somebody else will do that because that's part of helping people adjust to the light, being welcoming and serving in that way. So if you haven't signed up to serve at a Sunday Uh, one of the next three Sundays, I would strongly encourage you to do that and think of it not as signing up to do a job, but thinking about how you are helping others adjust to the light because we will have opportunity. And so join together like that. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I, I thank you for this morning and I thank you for what you've done. And God, I thank you for how you so tenderly eased me into the full light of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would would do that same things for others, that we would ease people into the, the full brightness of the light of the world. 
that God, we would, we would take advantage of the opportunity we have in this, even this, this month, this season, to help those walking in darkness to, to, begin, to begin to become accustomed to the light. God, that we would never adjust our light to the world, but God, that we would have patience and in kindness, we would love those around us. God, I thank you for bringing us and adjusting us to your light. I pray that we will reflect you in that. In Jesus' name, amen.